Usually I remember that just as Kevin is starting to speak, and I can do it subtly. All right, let's, uh, let's begin the service by going to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you for this time that we're able to gather with each other, our brothers and sisters, to be able to worship you. You are our one true God. We're here this morning to praise you, to see and to savor you for all that you are. We pray that your spirit would be among us this morning, that you'd lift our hearts to you in worship, and you'd be glorified, and that we would be comforted and encouraged as your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin with a scripture reading. Read a couple of psalms this morning. First one is Psalm 133. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And then Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's stand together now. We'll begin with uh, hymn number 100. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, thou art worthy. 
good singing. You can remain standing, and we'll turn to Psalm uh, to Him number one hundred and thirty-nine. Great is Thy faithfulness. Thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. 
blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Oh, to know God's presence with us day by day, his faithfulness to be with us even when we are unfaithful. We have our, our offering taken now, so have the ushers come forward. At this time, we're, we're going to sing the song that we learned for the first time last week. So, so hopefully you still have the lyrics in your pew. If you don't, yell and scream and we'll get you a copy.
I'm getting my exercise in this morning. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer together now. We've got a couple of requests in the in the offering plates. Any other requests, Brian? Mm. Okay, we'll pray for your dad. The Susie's baby. Okay. So Brian's dad has COVID, and the Susie's uh, baby Charlemagne, Charlie, yeah, is going into the hospital. Dottie. Yeah. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Warnard's biopsies came back and five of the tumors are benign. Yeah, Russ. Absolutely. Yeah, so Russ is going to be on the road for four weeks preaching, so we'll pray that, that God would bless his ministry. Any other requests or praises, thanksgivings? All right. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, as we have sung, you are worthy, O God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, the, the stars, the sun, the earth, even our own bodies and minds. You created all things for your good pleasure and for your own glory. So this morning we delight to worship you as the giver of all good things, as the creator of the universe. We praise you because you're our faithful father. Great is your faithfulness, O God. You don't change. We, we never have to worry about your love failing or your power faltering or diminishing. You never change. Your goodness remains forever. You are steadfast in your love towards us, Father, and we praise you. The seasons on the earth may change and the seasons of our life will change. Our friends and our family may come and go. One day even, we know, Lord, that our bodies will one day perish, but you will remain forever, and you will keep us, your people, safe in your hand forever. You're our good shepherd. We thank you, and we praise you for your faithfulness. You're faithful, but we're fickle, Father, and we confess that we're prone to wander from you. Even as Christians, even as Christians for many years, we confess, Lord, that even this week and even today, we've sinned and fallen short of your glory. We we're prone to forget you and to rebel against your good law. 
if we were to trust in our own works to stand before you, we would be condemned. So, Father, we confess our sins and we ask for your forgiveness. We ask that in Jesus' name, knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we confess in his name. Lead us, Lord, into all righteousness. Keep us from temptation. Even as you forgive our sins powerfully because of the cross, lead us into holiness powerfully because of the spirit that lives inside of us. Fill us with your spirit and bear in us the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We come before you, Father, thankful for many good things and anxious for your help in many hard things. We're thankful for the memorial service and the committal service yesterday for our, our pastor, Steve. We thank you for him, for his life and his ministry, for his great love for you and his great love for us. We thank you for his love for his family. We thank you for the many ways that Steve and his life impacted us as a church and as individuals in ways that we only know and to an extent that only you can measure. We thank you, Father, for the promise of eternal life. We thank you that we know, even now, that Steve is in your presence, fully alive. We thank you for the promise of one day bodily resurrection for all of us, that we will live forever with you, Lord, in a remade heaven and earth, a new Jerusalem. We thank you and we praise you for that hope. We pray, Father, for Steve's family. We pray for Jane. Please help us and equip us to be able to support her in the coming months. We, we praise you and we thank you for her steadfastness. We thank you and we praise you for your strong right hand as you uphold her. We pray for Tracy and the rest of Steve's family. We pray that they would look to you, Father, and your son, Jesus, for their hope. Send your spirit of comfort that they would look to Jesus for hope. We thank you for Pastor Phil and his ministry. We thank you for his ministry yesterday and what a comfort that was for us. We pray that you continue to bless his ministry as he works in the church setting and in the hospice setting, that you would bless many with his, with his love and that you, Lord, would make your love known through him. Continue to use him. Lord, we lift up all those with medical concerns. We think of Kevin this morning, who's dizzy and not with us. We pray that you'd restore him, Lord, help him to feel better. Lord, there's, there's so many names, so many folks we've been praying for. We think of Sarah Calvert as she continues to recover. We think of Andrea Littlefield. We think of Steve Wadsworth with his upcoming surgery. We think of the Palmers, Lord, Deb and Moxie. We think of Herm as he continues to breathe in the summer air. We praise you for Warnard's good report. We thank you so much, Lord, that those biopsies, that biopsy came back with five benign tumors. We praise you. We thank you. Father, we pray that you'd bless Russ as he goes and 
is going to be away from us for four weeks, but we pray that you bless his ministries. He's gathering with your people elsewhere. We pray that your, your word would be spoken clearly and powerfully through him, that many would be blessed by his ministry. We thank you that he's here with us at, at our church full time, and we thank you too that he's able to go and, um, and, uh, and support other churches. We pray that you give him safe travels. We pray for the um, for John Dyer, Lord, Beth and, Beth and Dean's brother-in-law. We pray for him and his family. He's in the Bangor Hospital with life-threatening medical issues. We just pray that you'd be very close to him, that if it be your will, that you'd restore him to full health. We pray, Lord, uh, we don't know his spiritual state, but we pray that you'd be close to him by your spirit, that as his his body is breaking, that he would look to you in his spirit for, for hope. We pray for the leadership in our, in our country at this time. It's a trying time in many ways. 2020 has been a strange and difficult year in the world and in the nation. We pray that you give wisdom to our leaders, godly wisdom. You'd raise up leaders of character. We, we mourn, Father, that in our society, sin is often and publicly celebrated and holiness is publicly scoffed at. We mourn that sexuality is publicly twisted. We mourn that our government has looked the other way as almost 60 million lives of children in the womb have been taken since the 70s. Father, our country is a place where good is called evil and evil is called good. Set us straight, God. Bring us revival. Turn our churches and our land back to you. We know, Father, that the instrument of spiritual renewal that you have in the world isn't government or governors, but it's the church of Jesus and wielding the strong sword of your true word in the power of your spirit. Pray that you would enable your church in this country to, to have our own spiritual revivals to turn to your word, to live lives of holiness before a crooked generation, and that your gospel would go out in power to the people around us. Equip us with boldness, Lord, to speak your truth. We know that it's actually the power of the love of God in the person of Jesus that changes sinful hearts. We need your power. Equip us to go to war for your kingdom in simple, small ways in our community. Help us to live simple lives of little faithfulness that would have big effects for your kingdom. Help us to pray big prayers for the future of your church here in this town and in Maine, in this country. Father, we think of Brian's father who's, uh, who has covid pray that you'd be with him, if you'd, it'd be your will that you'd keep him here on earth, Lord. We pray for his salvation, that he'd come to know you. Pray that you'd give Brian the opportunity to be able to share the gospel with him, that you'd soften his heart so he can hear. We know that has to be your work. We pray that you'd do so. When we think of the Susie's baby, Charlemagne, uh, we thank you for their family, and the salt and the light that they are in this community. We pray that you'd bring Charlie out of this. You'd bring her to health. 
We thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer that we can come before you boldly, knowing that you hear our prayers. We entrust all of this to you, knowing that you are far wiser, far more loving than we are, more powerful. We could worry about all this, or we could let you worry about all this. We're going to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, bring our requests to you. We ask, Lord, that the peace of God, your peace, would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. From what, everything that I can tell, this is a church of, uh, of gardeners. I've seen a lot of zucchini and cucumbers around. How many of you have a garden, just as a straw? Yeah. I'm not a gardener. Miranda has a little garden. I'm not a gardener. Uh, but I'm still amazed at the process. I love the process that a tiny little seed can grow and grow, and if the soil is good, and if there's enough water and sun, that you end up with piles and piles, and maybe too many piles, of cucumbers and zucchini and <laughs> peppers, tomatoes. It's a, it's, it's a, you share. I'm so thankful, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's really a miracle. It's a testimony to God's providence in the world that he causes the sun to shine and the water to, to come down and that plants grow, gardens grow. We'll return to gardening eventually. So far in our walk, walk through the Gospel of Mark, again and again we've seen that some people accept and put their faith in Jesus and others reject him. Again and again, it's happened there. The Pharisees, the scribes, tend to reject him. And then we've got this group of followers who follow Jesus, both his closest disciples and then a sort of larger group of, of groupies who are there really for his miracles. That was really the reality of his earthly ministry, that some rejected him and some accepted him. And that's, that's the reality for us today as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus. As Christians, we, we continue to make known the good news of Christ and him crucified, how he died for our sins, how he was raised from the dead on the third day, how he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. We, we proclaim that one day he's gonna come again in judgment and how by faith in him, we can actually share in the forgiveness which he earned by his death and the eternal life of his resurrection. At, uh, at Steve's service yesterday, the gospel was proclaimed clearly, both by Pastor Phil uh, and then also through a pre-recorded video message from Pastor Steve, which was wonderful. Um, and you, you can watch all that, that's on the Facebook page, so you can watch that this afternoon. Um, Pastor Steve spent his life proclaiming the gospel. And that's, that's our mission as the church. We proclaim the gospel. But the reality is not everyone who hears the gospel believes. Many people rejected Jesus during his earthly ministry and many people reject Jesus today. So we're gonna look today at a passage where Jesus explains why many, when they hear the gospel, 
never develop a lasting, fruitful faith. And my hope is that in all this, we'll actually be encouraged in our walk with the Lord and that we'll be spurred on to bold, uh, to be bold and tenacious in making Jesus known to the people around us. So as we go to the word, let's pray together and ask God's blessing. Father, we pray that you'd illuminate your word in our hearts by your spirit. Open up our hearts to receive your word. We're weak and we're needy. We need strength. Give us that from your word. Help us to hear your word, Father, and to believe it. Make our hearts and our minds and our lives good soil for your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, picking up where we left off last week. I'm not going to give you the number in the Pew Bible. I discovered this week that there's actually more than two kinds of Pew Bible in the pews. So it's not worth it for me to look up three or four different, different page numbers. Uh, Mark chapter 4, and we'll be starting in verse 1. By the end of the day, we'll move through verse 20. Again, in this passage, as we've seen throughout Mark, we find Jesus teaching. Find Jesus teaching. He's proclaiming with words the truth of the kingdom of God. Verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him. The crowds pressing in on Jesus are familiar to us by now. Many, many people wanted a piece of Jesus. And he resorted, when he's pressed basically against the shore by this crowd, to a similar tactic so that he got in a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. It's a wonderful scene to imagine. The crowd is pressed right up against the shore, listening with rapt attention, and you've got the disciples and Jesus out on the boat a few feet in the water. The scene is set, and the teacher began to teach. Mark 4 is one of the few chapters in Mark that's almost entirely teaching. Uh, As we've said, uh, the Gospel of Mark is much more about action. Jesus did this, Jesus did that. Um, A gospel like uh, Matthew is is much more packed with Jesus' actual words. But here in Mark 4, we've got um, almost continuous teaching from Jesus. We're dealing with another, we've talked about sandwiches in the text the last couple of weeks. Another sandwich today. Uh, Verses 2 through 9 is the parable of the sower. That's the bread. Uh, Then we've got... Uh, verses 10 through 12, Jesus explains the purpose of parables generally. That's the meat. And then another slice of bread, 13 through 20, the parable of the sower is explained. So we've got the parable on either side, and then in the middle, Jesus is explaining why he uses parables. So we're going to start with the meat. Uh, 10 through 12, Jesus' explanation of the parables. Why does Jesus use parables? We should probably start with the definition of parable. A parable is a short story or illustration with spiritual significance. 
It's a short story or illustration with spiritual significance. The, the literal meaning of the word uh, parabole in Greek is to throw alongside, to cast alongside. And that's what Jesus is doing with the parables. He takes a simple everyday principle or story and he throws it alongside in parallel a glorious kingdom truth. And he says, spot the difference or spot the similarity. See how these are alike. So that's what he's going to do today in the parable once we get there. That's, that's the gardening. We'll get back to it. Other people in history have used parables, but in the long history of short stories with spiritual significance, the parables of Jesus are preeminent. Jesus mastered the form, both in, really both in quality and in quantity, depending on exactly what you count as a parable, he used between 30 and 50 unique parables in the Gospels that we have recorded. Most of them are simple metaphors or stories, and they're understandable to the average listener, where they would have been in his culture. He uses simple metaphors from everyday life. Simple stories, but they communicated some of the most important truths that have ever been spoken. The purpose of the parables isn't as clear-cut, though, as we might think. According to Jesus, they were intended to reveal and to clarify the truth of the kingdom, which is straightforward. But, as Jesus teaches in this passage, they were also meant to conceal the kingdom, both to reveal truth and to conceal it. Let's look at verse 10. We're in Mark chapter 4 again. Verse 10, And when he was alone... Those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus had two purposes in using parables to reveal the secret of the kingdom to his followers and to conceal the secret of the kingdom from those who had rejected him. To reveal and to conceal. This is hard to understand. I can specifically remember running across this verse in the past and thinking, what is Jesus talking about? Why would he want to conceal the kingdom from anyone? And the answer is in the book of Isaiah, which Jesus actually quotes in this passage. Uh, in verse 12, that's a quote from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. And in Isaiah, chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah is given his commission, his marching orders, to go to God's rebellious people with a warning of impending judgment. In the face of continued warnings from the prophets, God's people had remained rebellious. They were worshiping other gods and they were living in unrepentant sin. Israel was a mess and they refused to get their house in order. And so I actually want to read Isaiah's commission in Isaiah chapter 6. This is the man who'd been called to speak God's word to God's people. This is his job description. If you want to go there, I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 9. This is after the great throne room vision where his, uh, Isaiah says, Whoa, I'm a, a man of unclean lips. His lips are cleansed. 
And this is, this is his job description. And he, God, said to Isaiah, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Isaiah had kind of a depressing job description. He was being sent to a people who would not hear, could not see, and would not submit to the word of God that he was given. His job was to preach to a people whose judgment was already coming. And he was supposed to preach until the people were whittled down to a remnant, verse 13, a stump. All the leaves and the branches were going to come down, the whole trunk down to the stump, which was going to be the starting point for rebuilding God's people. This, this kind of thing isn't a surprise to us if we know our Bibles. This is a pattern in scripture, God's people rebel, they're given over to judgment, but a remnant remains, which still holds faith in God's promises. Rebellion, judgment, remnant. Happens over and over again in scripture. Think about uh, Noah, even before Abraham, right? The whole world had rebelled. God brings his judgment on a rebellious world, but saves a remnant for himself, a righteous remnant, Noah and his family. It's what happened in the wilderness after the exodus, right? Israel rebelled on the doorstep of the promised land. An entire generation was given over to judgment in the wilderness, but then another generation rose up. A remnant, think Caleb here, right? A righteous remnant remains and goes into the promised land. Rebellion, judgment, remnant. This is a pattern. A similar thing was happening in Isaiah and in the other prophets around the time of the exile. Isaiah and the prophets were being sent to a people who were disobedient, and they were soon to be coming under judgment. They weren't gonna listen to Isaiah and the prophets. That's why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, right? No one's listening to him. But God was going to preserve a stump, a remnant, to carry on God's promises to Abraham and to his descendants into a new generation, more faithfully, hopefully, than their fathers. Rebellion, judgment, remnant. And that's what's happening here in Mark chapter four. The pattern is repeating. Jesus, in invoking Isaiah six, I think is pointing to another cycle of rebellion, judgment, remnant. Think about the context here. Jesus is the perfect king of Israel, the son of God, the savior of his people and of the world. And he came into the world to his people with the message of salvation, with the full authority of the father. And directly upon his arrival, he was soundly rejected by the religious authorities of his people. Rebellion, 
rebellion. And then Jesus announces that everyone who's rejected him, who isn't his follower, who hasn't believed in him, is actually cut off from understanding about the coming kingdom. In the parables, Jesus is actually bringing a judgment on a rebellious people. Parables concealed the kingdom from those who rejected the king. Rebellion, judgment. But there's a remnant. There's a remnant. Parables revealed the kingdom to those who greeted their king. Notice that Jesus waited until he was alone with his followers to explain the parable, verse 10. And when he was alone, when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. The kingdom was being revealed in the parables to the faithful remnant. Verse 11 again, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. The kingdom was concealed in parables in judgment on a rebellious people. Jesus used parables both to conceal and to reveal. One scholar put it like this. He says, parables are like stained glass windows in a cathedral, dull and lifeless from the outside, but brilliant and radiant from within. Like our beautiful stained glass window, from the outside, apart from faith in the king, the parables are cloudy and dull, concealing the kingdom. But once you get inside the circle of faith, once you acknowledge that Jesus is the king and step in the door, the parables come to life. Jesus used parables to conceal and to reveal the secret of the kingdom. Why secret? Why that language here? The fact that a Messiah was coming wasn't a secret. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah king. They had been. A king who was going to come and restore the glory of God's people, Israel. It was promised by the same prophets that foretold the judgment. Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're, they're foretelling the, the judgment and the exile of the people, but also a coming Messiah. The secret is the precise nature of the coming king. Because when Jesus came, he wasn't exactly what the people were expecting. Jesus was the Messiah, and he had come to win a kingdom, not by military conquest like the Jews may have wanted, but by his death on a Roman cross and his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' kingdom wasn't going to grow by the might of the sword, but by the might of the word, the gospel of Jesus, as it spread and is still spreading across the world. Jesus and his kingdom fulfill all that had been foretold in shadowy ways in the Old Testament. But now, upon his arrival, through the parables, the secret of Jesus' kingdom was becoming unsecret, at least to those who had faith to hear. Now we'll get to the parable itself. A good question to ask as we come to the parables is this. What is Jesus' kingdom like? What is Jesus' kingdom like? The parables are, are Jesus' tool to give us the answer. What's the kingdom like? So let's look at the first parable. It's fitting that this parable is paired with Jesus' explanation of the parables. Both the parable itself and his explanation deal with hearing, 
Some people will hear and accept Jesus' kingdom word in faith, and some will refuse to hear and will reject Jesus' kingdom word. As we've said, that's still the case today. Many people hear the gospel of Jesus, but not all believe. Why is that? Well, Jesus is gonna tell us. The, the big idea of the parable is this. Jesus' kingdom word, the gospel, will meet all kinds of responses. Jesus' kingdom word will meet all kinds of responses. In the face of such rejection of Jesus' ministry, even at the time where Jesus is telling the parable, the disciples needed to come to terms with the fact that not everyone was going to bow the knee to the king. Most of the tree, as we read in Isaiah, was coming down. Only a remnant would be left. And we too need to come to terms with the fact that not everyone will respond to the gospel. And like the disciples, it will be good for us to understand why. Why so many people were and still are rejecting Jesus. Why do some people believe the gospel and endure while others don't? Jesus is gonna explain to us the answer to that question in the parable with gardening. Specifically in talking about seeds. Verse two, and he was teaching them many things in parables. This is his public explanation here. And in his teaching, he said to them, behold, uh, listen, rather, behold, a sower went out to sow. Sower is someone who plants seeds. I know that much. He explains his imagery in verse 14. The sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. The sower distributes God's word out into the, wor into the world. And as Jesus spoke these words, the primary sower of God's word into the world was Jesus himself. Jesus was preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom to the world. And when he ascended, when the spirit came down upon the church, the church was entrusted with that same word, the gospel, sowing the seed of the gospel out into the world. We've still got the seed bag, we're still sowing. So what happens to the seed? What happens when we begin to speak the gospel word into the world? There are, according to Jesus, four basic responses. First, we're shown the seeds on the path. The seeds on the path. Some people never believe the word. Verse four, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Jesus explains this in verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. In this immediate context, we think immediately of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were, for the most part, hard, packed down ground. There was no soil in their hearts that was able to accept the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Um, we all know about dirt roads here in Maine. Um, earlier this, during the spring, I it was right in the middle of mud season. I drove North Ridge Road between Route 3 and, uh, and Center Montville, and that was a bad idea. <laughs> my, my little hatchback was not ready for those ruts. 
I'm sure it's a different story by now, though. After a dry summer, that road is hard, packed. Dirt roads have a way of doing that. With continued pressure, they become hard and unyielding. And Jesus is telling us that some people have hard and unyielding hearts. There are some people who, when we share the gospel with them, the seed will bounce right off. Because of their hard-heartedness, they will remain in darkness apart from God, following, as Paul says in Ephesians, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the birds plucking up the seed and taking it away. Some people, when they hear the gospel, will not believe. The next response to the word is pictured by the seeds on the rocky ground. Some people fall away from the word when they face difficulty. Verse five, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Jesus explains in verse 16, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Verse 5, we're told that this rocky soil did have some soil, but it wasn't much, just a thin layer of soil on the top of hard rock. And I'm told by gardening experts that because of the rock, the soil would have been kept warm and that the seed in that shallow soil would have sprouted up exuberantly, but then it would have withered in the sun as it grew because there's nowhere for the roots to to grow. This is the second response to the gospel. Some people hear it and say, wow, that sounds like good news. I'd like a get-out-of-hell-free card. I'd love to have joy and hope in Jesus. That sounds great. Just one prayer, and I'll have some awesome perks. (laughs) But we're told by Jesus that these people only have a superficial faith. When faith in Jesus is easy and sunny, they'll stick around. But as soon as it gets hard, as soon as they're called to forsake sin, to suffer persecution, to do anything sacrificial in following Jesus, they fall away. There's no root. There's many people in Jesus' ministry who followed him in the good times but abandoned him by the end. It was a small crowd who was weeping for Jesus as he was crucified and a huge one crying, crucify him. And understanding that this response is to be expected should both encourage and sober us. It should both encourage and sober us. It should encourage us because it's expected. Often when Christians fall away from their profession of faith, especially if we're close to them or if they have some sort of public platform, it's discouraging to us and we might be led to questions like, If the gospel is so good, if God's the real deal, then why did these people fall away? And Jesus explains that, unfortunately, this is actually normal. In fact, it's inevitable as long as people are making superficial professions of faith. 
there will always be people who hop on the Jesus bandwagon as long as it's sunny and who hop off when the rain clouds come. They never had roots in the first place. And this should sober us too. Those of us who are Christians ought to examine ourselves and ask, do I have roots? Am I here for the benefits of Christianity or am I here for Christ himself? Am I here because Christianity is a nice addition to my life or am I in the faith because having met Jesus, I realize there's nowhere else to go. John records one occasion when a bunch of people had been following him because he was giving out bread. Famous story, feeding the the 5,000. There's a lot of superficial followers who, once Jesus gives some hard teaching in John 6, they walk away. And Jesus asks his disciples, this is John 6, in uh, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's rooted faith. That's faith that will endure. The third response to the word is pictured by the seeds and the thorns. The seeds and the thorns. Some people remain fruitless in the world because, in the, fruitless in the word, rather, because of worldliness. Verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Verse 18, Jesus explains, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. We have a maple tree in our backyard, and it isn't native. Uh, It has these really thick, dark red leaves. It's an ornamental uh, maple. Some people like them. Um, But it has these dark red, almost purplish leaves all year long. And it's dark underneath the tree because it's so thick and the leaves are so dark. And the grass has a difficult time thriving because of the lack of sunlight. You could sow all kinds of grass seed back there but the light will always keep it from thriving. That spot underneath that tree, as long as the tree's there, will just be little struggling sprouts of grass, never thriving to full potential. And Jesus is telling us that some people are like that. They'll profess to believe the gospel and maybe even in difficulty remain in the faith, but they're never fruitful in the faith. Christian fruitfulness takes many forms, but in this parable, because fruitfulness in the fourth soil, we'll see, is actually uh, described by multiplication. I think the fruitlessness that Jesus is describing is a lack of evangelism, service, and any other kind of impact on the people around us. Instead of a faith without roots, this is a faith without fruits. Some people will profess faith in Jesus and are interested in being part of the kingdom but are too busy with worldly desires and pursuits to care at all about the mission of the king. And this was the case in Jesus' ministry. On multiple occasions, he called people to follow him but they couldn't give up their stuff, notably the rich young ruler. 
It's the same for us today. Our lives in this world are full of shiny things which can distract us from our calling as kingdom citizens. Because we've literally been saved from eternal death by sheer grace into the promise of eternal life and paradise with God, our purpose in this life is to be about the mission of Jesus. We, we need to tell others. We need to be all in on Jesus' kingdom. But it's all too easy to call ourselves Christian and then to still live like what we're really working for is earthly security and riches and position and gain. The old saying is about those who are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. That may be a problem in some quarters, but I think by far the greater problem in the richest country in the history of the world is that the church is so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. We can get so occupied with the pursuits of the world, building our little sandcastles here, that we forget that we're really citizens of the kingdom, of the new Jerusalem, and that to build something which will really last, we have to be working to build the kingdom of Jesus. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The final soil. The seeds that are in the good soil. Some people accept the word and bear fruit. Verse 8. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Verse 20, Jesus explains, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. I want you to think about Jesus' audience here. Jesus' followers and apostles who accepted the seed of the word would go on to turn the world upside down with it. Uh, Scholars and commentators guessed that there were just around 600 followers of Jesus just before Pentecost. It's the apostles and then the other followers who were with Jesus and close to the disciples. My guess is that's around six to 12 average main churches. Six to 12 times us. Maybe the number of Christians in Waldo County. but those 600 were good soil. By the turn of the third century, they had borne fruit. There were approximately 300 million Christians in the Roman Empire around the turn of the third century. They had become a major cultural force in the Roman Empire. They won official Roman recognition and eventually the the empire was Christianized. That's exponential fruitfulness just in the matter of a couple hundred years. And we're still called to bear fruit. That's the church. I think Pastor Steve should be our inspiration for fruitfulness. He received the word with joy, sprouted up, and then spent the rest of his life in heavenly-minded earthly ministry. He touched so many lives, he scattered so much seed 
And he knew the lesson of this parable well. Not everyone who hears will believe. Many people who Steve shared the gospel with rejected his gospel and his Jesus. But Steve, if he was nothing else, was tenacious. Rejection, as far as I could see, didn't phase him. He went on boldly sharing the gospel of Jesus, whatever people might do with it. Matt shared with me this week about Heather's boldness with her family and friends. Like Steve, whenever she sensed an opportunity to talk about Jesus, she seized on it, regardless of the apparent resistance of whoever she was talking to. She was tenacious in sowing the seed of the gospel. That should be our attitude too. Rejection, according to Jesus, is expected. Jesus dealt with it. The prophets dealt with it. We're gonna deal with it too. People will always reject the gospel. It's almost a guarantee that if you're consistently talking to friends and family about Jesus, you will have more fruitless conversations than fruitful ones. But if we wait around for a guarantee of fruitfulness, we'll never sow the seed. We shouldn't underestimate the impact that we can make with simple faithfulness, regardless of the outcome. We can expect that sharing the gospel will meet resistance and rejection from many, but faithfully scattering the seed of the gospel will bear fruit. One last word on the soils before we finish. This metaphor might lead us to believe that the reason people either accept or reject the gospel is based on something inherent in them, that some people are just in themselves more ready for Jesus than others. And that's not the biblical teaching. Having a heart that's ready to come to Jesus in faith isn't something that we're born with. If it worked that way, those of us who are Christians would kind of be able to lord it over everyone else, right? <laughs> we're the good soil. <laughs> That's not the way it works. In John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The only way that our hearts are made into good soil ready for the gospel is the gracious work of God and the power of his spirit. And according to Paul in Ephesians 2, even our faith itself is a gift from God. We're all born with poor soil. We, we don't have any reason to gloat over anyone else. It takes the hoeing and furrowing and fertilizing of God himself in our hearts to be ready for the word of the gospel. And that is all the more reason to pray. As we cast the seed of the gospel out into a weary world, we should do so with much prayer, asking God to bless our efforts to soften the hearts of those who hear, that the word would sprout and bear fruit in their hearts just as it has in ours. That's it. Let's pray. Lord of the harvest, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world to live a perfect life and to die for our sins. We praise you for his resurrection, for the hope 
that we have of our future resurrection in his name. Thank you for the good news of Jesus. We pray for those of us who have believed that we would have roots that go deep, true faith, which can weather the storm. Clear our hearts and our lives of thorns which choke out our fruitfulness. Give us a heavenly-mindedness which will do much kingdom good. Make us fruitful. Give us gospel boldness like Steve and like Heather. Make us ready to weather rejection for the sake of the gospel. And Father, we do ask and pray that you would make the hearts of those around us soft that they might believe. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Our final hymn this morning is number 235. Two thirty-five, one of Kevin's favorites. Take the name of Jesus with you. Sing all four verses. Take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe. It will joy and comfort give you. Take it then where'er you go, precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven, precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. Take the name of Jesus ever. As a shield from every snare If temptations round you gather Breathe that holy name in prayer Precious name, oh how sweet Hope of earth and joy of heaven Precious name, oh how sweet Hope of earth and joy of heaven oh the precious name of jesus how it thrills our souls with joy when his loving arms receive us and his songs our tongues employ precious name oh how sweet hope of earth and joy Precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. At the name of Jesus bowing, falling prostrate at his feet, King of kings in hand will crown him when our journey is complete. Precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven. Precious name, oh how sweet, hope of earth and joy of heaven.
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. God bless you.